The reason I've selected the subject of Tibetan Buddhism is that it has some very remarkable aspects to it which exemplify the coming together of the domains that we usually separate as spiritual and material. There is an aspect of Tibetan Buddhism which is called by the Sanskrit word tantric. That's the adjective, the anglicized adjective of tantra, T-A-N-T-R-A. The basic meaning of which is a web. And uh, the secondary meaning is continuity. Because when you have weaving, you notice that there's a pattern and it appears that the parts of the weaving, supposing you've woven a bird on uh, the one side of it, it looks as if the bird stands there all by itself, but if you turn it over, you see that the threads which make up the bird are continuous with the whole thing. It runs underneath and so you get a total um, piece of weaving. So, in the same way, when in everyday life we perceive things, we see them as if they were disconnected, as if they stood out alone in space and were things in a world rattling around like peas in a pod or something like that. But there is another point of view from which looking at it, as it were, from the underside, you will discover the continuity of all individuals. Whatever kind of individual you're thinking about, whether you're thinking about a human individual or a pebble or an insect or a mountain, there's a point of view from which you can see their continuity, a meaning of Tantra, with the whole thing. And there are many ways in which the Buddhism of Tibet has exemplified this, and so that's why I'm going to talk about it. But now, having uh, discussed a few things with you, I see we've got to begin on a rather fundamental level of what Buddhism is about. First of all, Buddhism differs radically from almost any form of religion you will find in the West. Because it's not based on the principle of belief. It doesn't have any doctrines you're supposed to believe in. The approach of Buddhism is entirely experimental. That is to say, it is interested not in ideas. The, the ideas are quite incidental to Buddhism. It's interested in the transformation of human consciousness. So that uh, the, 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 the absolutely basic thing in Buddhism is this. How do you experience your own existence? If you experience your own existence as being an area of sensitivity, a source of action blocked up inside your own skin, the Buddhist would say you are a victim of a hallucination. This hallucination has come about through many, many ways, but largely through a sort of social indoctrination. That is, in other words, a, a phony way of experiencing life your own life and uh, so being a hallucination an illusion one could wake up from it and experience your existence as it 
truly is, that is to say, as being a function of, an activity of, the entire universe. So that the, the, the meaning of myself is utterly changed. Ordinarily, myself means uh, a particular individual, maybe a sort of soul or ego, living inside the bag of skin. But after the experience of awakening, myself comes to mean uh, the ground of being. The basic, eternal, infinitely uh, fruitful reality. So, to be awakened is the concern of Buddhism. And, of course, therefore, the word Buddha means a person who has woken up, who is no longer under the illusion of separateness, what is called Sakaya Drishti. The Buddha, as a historical character, is therefore a representative of an entire class of beings who appear in the world every so often, or whom one grows into being. It's not a proper name, it's a title. The man who woke up, who is no longer hypnotized. See, when you put a beak of a chicken on a chalk line, the chicken stays stuck to the chalk line. So in the same way, when you put the nose of a baby on a certain track, which is the, what we call the ego, it gets stuck there. And it's a form of hypnosis. And uh, to wake up from this is to be a Buddha. So the person we call the Buddha, Gotama, Siddhartha, was the son of a prince living close to Nepal in northern India shortly after 600 BC, is simply one of many, many Buddhas, but one who had, who taught in an extremely effective way as a result of which he founded a school, an order of disciples, and this grew and grew and grew and grew until it expanded all over the world. But the principle of Buddhism is a transformation of your sense of identity. So it has, as it were, it, it delineates two states. One it calls samsara, and the other it calls nirvana. Samsara means the round. The appropriate American translation is the rat race. A vicious, a, a way of living in a vicious circle. So that, for example, the more you succeed in anything, say you succeed economically, you get hung up on it. The more you succeed, the more you have to succeed to keep the thing going. And you get full of anxiety. Uh, you think that you're going to solve your life problems by getting rich and you succeed. But you find that uh, the game isn't worth the candle because it's too much responsibility. And you're worrying whether somebody's going to take it away from you. Uh, or if you, if you solve the problem of uh, finances, you suddenly get the problem of health and you start worrying whether you're going to get sick. Uh, samsara is... Nothing fails like success. And the samsara is divided into six regions. There are, first of all, the su supremely successful beings. They're called angels. Deva in Sanskrit. There are 
Opposite them, below, at the bottom of the wheel, the supremely unsuccessful beings, and they're called the Narakas. We would say they live in purgatory. There are two purgatories, there's a hot one and a cold one, and they adjoin each other. Then uh, we might say next, uh, going from the top, going clockwise round the wheel, next to the successful people, the angels, they're the angry people. They're called Ashura. And they represent, uh, they're represented as spirits of cosmic violence. Giants who are, uh, as it were, the embodiments of thunderstorms and earthquakes and tornadoes. Next to them are the animals. Uh, all kinds of animals whatsoever. Then again, the Narakas, we're down to the bottom. Then coming up again, next to the Narakas, there are the, the Pretas. And they are the tormented beings who are frustrated. They have very large bellies and tiny mouths. Immense appetite with very little means of satisfying it. Then next to them, going up again, are the humans. And the humans occupy a more or less middle position, that is to say, as middle as you can get in this kind of six-fold configuration. Uh, and it's said that if you want to become a Buddha, if you want to become awakened, you must start from the human position. Uh, so do you see what's happening? The, the state of Buddhahood is not in the sixfold classification. There are gods and angels in the sixfold classification, but according to Buddhist ideas, gods and angels are still within the samsara. They're still in the rat race. They have succeeded, but success implies failure. If you go as high as you can get, you're going to come down again. A Buddha is one who is free from the wheel, and you can represent that as being either at the center of the wheel, the still point of the turning world, the eye of the hurricane where it's calm, or off the wheel altogether. In Tibetan Buddhism, when you have drawings of the paintings of the wheel, you find not only is there often a Buddha at the center, but there is a Buddha in each domain, as it were, in the center of each domain. There is a Buddha appropriate to that part. And he represents the idea that you can be thoroughly involved in the wheel, and yet at the same time not involved. You can be in the world, but not of it. In Tibetan Buddhism, when you have drawings of the paintings of the wheel, you find not only is there often a Buddha at the center, but there is a Buddha in each domain, as it were, in the center of each domain. There is a Buddha appropriate to that part. And he represents the idea that you can be thoroughly involved in the wheel, and yet at the same time not involved. You can be in the world, but not of it. So, that would be saying, in order to escape from vicious circles, from the samsara, the best way out of it is right into the middle of it. If you try to get out of it, to escape from it, you always attach yourself more and more problematically to what you try to escape from. For example, we know in our work with uh, psychic states induced by drugs that if some very terrifying thing comes up, it's fatal to run away from it. Always head right into it. Find out why you're afraid. Find out what in it 
bugs you. So in the same way with helping people who have pain. Uh, instead of running away, it's very educative. It's difficult, but it is very, very educative to accept pain and to try and experience it more and more and more and more deeply so that you go, as it were, right down into it. So with the samsara, uh, to go deeply into it is to find out that the samsara, that is to say, this ordinary everyday life in which you are involved is really not different from nirvana, which means release. The word nirvana means to blow out. And that is to give a sigh of relief. If you try to hold your breath, you will lose it. And the breath, of course, is the life. But if you give your breath up and breathe out, you'll get a new breath back in. So nirvana means to cease to cling to oneself, to one's possessions, to one's status, to one's virtues, to one's vices. It makes no difference. So if you pile up virtues, if you become a very good person with the expectation of going to heaven, you are bound to the wheel with golden chains. If you become a very bad person and you sink down into the Naraka domains, you are bound to the wheel with red-hot iron chains. But either way you are bound and you will go round and round and round and round always like a little mouse in one of those things where it's trying to climb to the top of the wheel and the wheel just goes round and round and the mouse stays in the same place. The Buddhists uh, have a view of the universe which is based, of course, on ancient Hindu ideas that the wheel is of vast proportions. There isn't only this solar system world. It's so striking how the Buddhists and the Hindus differed from medieval Christians who thought that there was just this one little world and our planet was the center of it and uh, there were the various spheres outside. But they've always thought in terms of there being untold myriads of worlds. Not only vast outwardly in space, going on and on and on forever, but also vast inwardly. So that uh, in every speck of dust there are innumerable cosmoses full of beings of all kinds full of gods and uh, events and wars and uh, uh, even galaxies and things inside a grain of dust. In every direction, in every way, they see myriads of universes. And they go on forever and ever. And uh, although we think of the rhythm of the universe we're in, in Hindu cosmology, as being based on the Kalpa, it manifests for a period called a Kalpa, 4,320,000 years, and then it's withdrawn for an equivalent period and then manifests again. There are tiny Kalpas governing the universes in a grain of dust, which come and go with, from our point of view, unbelievable rapidity. And then also, far beyond our conception, there are immense Kalpas, where cosmoses unthinkable in dimensions come and go. And so, uh, always the question about this view of the universe is, uh, are you hooked on it or aren't you? 
Are you doing it with delight or is it a drag? Are you surviving, you see? Are you going on living every day because you feel bound to or you're too afraid to die? Or are you living every day because you really will to? Now they see, you see, the universe as always playing a game with itself. Sometimes it knows what it is. That there is nothing to be afraid of at all. Nothing, nothing, nothing. That you are it. You are the indestructible shunyata. This word literally means voidness. But it doesn't mean voidness in the sense of nothing, of just negative. It means voidness in the sense of ultimate consciousness. You can't, you see, if you would consider what would God, uh, what sort of an impression of himself would he have? He obviously wouldn't look at his hands like we do and see he's an old man with a beard sitting on the throne. God, as the kind of ultimate, ultimate, than which there is no witcher, outside which there is nothing, which has no edges, he wouldn't therefore look like a ball, he wouldn't look like a cube, he wouldn't look like a body. There would be no way at all of conceiving the final self of all selves. So that's why it's represented as voidness, as total transparency, as a kind of ultimate space in which everything can happen. That's what there is. That's what we all are at root. Only it plays that it's not that, that it's all of our separate existences and it goes in therefore and it gets into trouble on purpose. But when you get into real trouble on purpose and then you forget that you got there on purpose and you can complain because you, you're in a trap and then you want out, you see? So uh, then there's a way out. But how exciting. Uh, th this goes on endlessly because it's a game of now you see it, now you don't. Hide and seek. And that corresponds to the basic impulse of life, which, uh, as we know it physically, is vibration. It's a wave system where there are crests of the waves and troughs. So if you take what we call sound and you listen to sound carefully, Sound is not sound. Sound is sound silence. It goes on and off, on and off, on and off, on and off. And where you say you hear the noise, that's the crest of the wave. Where you don't hear the noise, that's the trough. But you won't get any sound at all without both crest and trough. Pure sound doesn't exist. And so according to the basic ideas that underlie Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, all being is like that. It is coming and going. It is therefore not only life. Life is life-death. What we call reality is not merely a solid. It's solid space. Here it is, here it isn't. It vibrates. And the illusion that is involved in this is that it looks as if you could have the one without the other. It looks sometimes as if we could have nothing without something.
that nothing would triumph and that everything would disappear and it wouldn't happen anymore. At other times, it looks as if the solid element were the only real one. That that alone is there. So, all beings, all sentient beings, as the Buddhists call them, constantly scare themselves that it might stop and that there would be nothing. In other words, that the dark side might win. So they play a game which is that the white side must win. They play it against the dark and have an extraordinary adventure doing just that. And you can get involved in this and you can get anxious and you can get all your hair raised and just terrifying. But it's a joke. Right, right down to its funny heart. And when you wake up and you find out that uh, there never was anything in the dark side to be afraid of, nothing is left but to laugh. So that's what, the, the, that's what Buddhism is about. It's a method. That's what the word Dharma means. The method for bringing about a new state of consciousness in which you discover that the opposites go together. Therefore, Buddhism is a dialogue, or what we would call in the West a dialectic. Primarily a dialogue carried on between teacher and student, the Buddha and his original disciples, the descendants of those disciples and their disciples, or the teacher in Buddhism may not actually be another individual human being. The teacher may be life itself. It might be uh, anything. It could even be a book. But there is a, there's a dialogue goes on. And uh, if you read the original Buddhist scriptures, uh, there is a huge section of it simply called the Dialogues of the Buddha because he always worked like Socrates in terms of a conversation. Now that has a very important meaning. If you read the original Buddhist scriptures, uh, there is a huge section of it simply called the Dialogues of the Buddha because he always worked like Socrates in terms of a conversation. Now that has a very important meaning. You must be very careful when you read anything about Buddhism or what people say about it to understand this principle of dialogue. Because what appear to be the teachings of Buddhism are actually no more than the opening statements of the dialogue. Let's say people say Buddhism teaches that everything is impermanent and that uh, the universe is like a diaphanous film of smoke. There's nothing you can catch hold of in it. Now, it's true, Buddhism starts out from that position, but that's not where it ends. It is taught that everything is diaphanous and impermanent, 
to bring about certain psychological changes. And then when those have happened, you pass on to a deeper understanding than that. Similarly, it is taught that there is no real self. That's a gambit. That's something the teacher throws out for you to experiment with. But that's not the final position. Strictly speaking, the final position to which one comes in Buddhism cannot be represented in words at all. But it can be experienced. Although even that is not an accurate way of saying it. When we say something can be experienced, that, uh, that suggests that you are one thing and the experience is another. And experience is something you can get or have. But to come to the point which is the center of Buddhism, the experience is the experiencer. There is no difference between the two. So that's what it does. Uh, so it begins in this way then. You have a problem, which is, I want out. You see, here I'm involved in the samsara, in the round. And it's becoming extremely inconvenient, painful. Uh, I feel threatened by disease and death and loss of possessions and friends and so on, and it's just all terrible. Is there anybody who knows what to do? Well, it looks as if there were some guys over there who uh, don't seem worried. They are priests or monks or sages or whatever it may be. And so people go and say to those people, Look, what are we going to do? And those people turn back and say, All right. Isn't it clear that you suffer because you desire? You always want something else than what is. And so you're always being disappointed. You are made so that you wear out. So you fall apart. And you want not to be that way. But you see, if you weren't falling apart all the time, you wouldn't be alive. So there's a contradiction between what you say. You say, I would like to have pleasure, but I don't want pain. But in order to, be ple to have pleasure, you must have a certain kind of sensitivity. If you have that, it can get hurt, as well as delighted. So what do you want? So the teacher gradually makes you examine what you want. And he points out that every time you think you know what you want, he points out that you're in contradiction with yourself. You haven't thought it through. And later on, you come to the limits of where you can think it through. And he takes you into another stage. He then asks you, who are you? What are you? And you say, I, well, I've always been told that I was Alan Watts, or someone like that. And uh, he said, well, is that so? And so I have to go back and I have to look and find out, who am I? Well, I find I'm a sort of onion. I find that I, what I did present to him as myself was a mask, and I peel it off. And he says to me, ha-ha, now let's look at your new mask. What's underneath that? So I peel that one off, and I go peeling. And suddenly I find, why, I thought there would be a pit at the center, but there isn't. There's just a pile of skins. And where am I? And, uh, you know, I hear some kind of droll laughter because... 
uh, I wasn't inside the onion at all. The onion was inside me. I was the space in which the onion was contained. But I was thinking that I was something in the middle of it. Or that I was the, a particular skin, a particular surface. The teacher has many, many ways of, uh, they're called upaya, or skillful means, for getting people to find this out. All he really does, basically, is does, what is it? What is reality? What is existence? And he makes you look at it. And you can do that in, every, in many kinds of ways. For example, you can take the end of your spectacles and bite. And you can feel that on your teeth and you can concentrate your whole mind on that bite and try and find out what is it that I'm biting? What is biting? What is the effort I feel inside my muscles? Where does that effort come from? What is the source of the physical activity? Concentrate on that. What is that thing that's there? That's the whole of yoga, really. It's finding out what it is. So very often, you see, um, a teacher in trying to get you to a certain point of understanding as to what something is, will go, Hup! See, just so at that moment, that noise might be the occasion through which you could find out what it is. you go on and on and on in, into this and eventually you come to the point where you find out that what it is is you you are one thing and it another although we're playing it that way because that's the hide and seek game you're it isn't it funny how in the game of hide and seek we designate somebody to be it <laughs> <coughs> now that means then you see that you come to the point where you see through the game but it's very complicated to come to that point because the game is so well done the illusion we are all so marvelously distinguished from each other And these distinctions are fantastically complex. When we look out and see the pine needles on the trees, we say, well, they're not really very different from each other. They're all pretty much the same. I wouldn't know one from another if I really looked at them. They're all alike. And I suppose if somebody comes from Mars and looks at human beings and hasn't seen human beings before, they're all exactly the same. Same in way when uh, Japanese people saw Westerners for the first time, they all looked the same. They all had red hair and long noses. Consequently, when we, for the first time, look at Oriental peoples or Negro peoples, we say, oh, they're all the same. I can't tell one from another. But you look deeply and you get used to them and they all start getting different. So would the pine needles. So, you see, in that way, we're involved in being human and therefore we all look incredibly different from each other. We all feel very different. And we accentuate this difference by having hate for each other or love for each other. 
And so it all grows. The element of differentiation becomes more and more and more and more emphasized. And that's scary. Because we think, I'll lose me, I'll lose what I love, or I'll be overcome by the enemy, by the different, the other thing. Uh, you see, but that's because we are at a point in the development of consciousness where we are at the extreme moment of differentiation. When you think, when I die, there will only exist what is other than me. Isn't that spooky? In other words, the here will disappear and the there will remain. Or if I go completely insane, I will be possessed by something completely alien. If you've ever been close to going insane, to feel the real horrors of this thing coming over you, where you have no control of it, and it's going to take you absolutely out of your mind. You're going to go into a state of mind where everything is unfamiliar. In a threatening way, and you know how that can be? Imagine, for example, a perfectly weird smell. It doesn't remind you of anything. It isn't a good smell, it isn't a bad smell. It's utterly unclassifiable. And it spooks you. It's so strange. Well, imagine if everything became like that. Suddenly, everything in front of your eyes became unspeakably strange and odd. And you feel, ooh, stay away from me. See? Well, that's very like some of the ways one goes into insanity. And, uh, the, the, but you see, it's the, the, what is taking over is the principle of strangeness, as distinct from the pr principle of the familiar, the other. So what if everything became strange, or other, or nothing? I was nobody home, you see. So these threats lie in the game of playing that the two sides of the world, the black and the white, the I and the thou, the subject and the object, don't go together. So what if everything became strange? Or other? Or nothing? I was nobody home, you see. So these threats lie in the game of playing that the two sides of the world, the black and the white, the I and the thou, the subject and the object, don't go together. Now, we must therefore realize in studying Buddhism that it has this dialectical nature And that the dialogue which the Buddha started by suggesting that you try to eliminate suffering by eliminating desire. He knew perfectly well you can't eliminate desire because if you try that's already a desire to eliminate desire. But he wanted the people to try the experiment and see what would happen. They did. And these, this kind of experimentation went on over hundreds of years and as it went on people began to record 
the various stages through which their experiments went. And as a consequence of this, Buddhism underwent changes. It developed an aspect of itself which was quite different from the first aspect. And we broadly speak of the two schools of Buddhism as being Theravada, which is closest to the original texts, and Mahayana, which is a development. Mahayana simply represents a deeper level of the dialogue. The Theravadins do what people so often tend to do, uh, which is to stay with the authority of the original teacher. In other words, you might say that there are certain people who call themselves Bible Christians. They don't want any truck with the church. Let's stick with the simple teachings of Jesus as they originally were formulated and not have anything added to that. Other people would say, well, that's ridiculous because if the simple teachings of Jesus are fruitful, they'll make everybody else think of new things. And they'll stimulate uh, changes of consciousness, changes of ideas, and we'll add that all on and it'll be like an acorn. When it's put into the ground, it no longer looks like an acorn. It turns into a huge tree. So th that idea has been fundamental to Buddhism, that it, it grows as a tree grows. And so that the materials, the teachings of Mahayana Buddhism are contained in scriptures and it's said that the Buddha gave these scriptures but not in this world. These are the lectures he gave to the gods to uh, all kinds of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in uh, somewhere in some other kind of space. Now, what happened historically is, I suppose, this. That the Mahayana scriptures were written by uh, Buddhist monks who had uh, nothing much to do on long, wet afternoons. And uh, they wrote and wrote, you know, that the Mahayana Buddhist scriptures, uh, when put together, are a set of books larger than the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's simply prodigious. But they are all attributed to the Buddha or to the great bodhisattvas, some of whom are, as it were, cosmological figures who don't incarnate on this level at all. So what happened? Those monks who wrote these things down genuinely felt that they were expressing a wisdom which was not their own. They wouldn't have dreamed of signing their own names to this stuff. They say, this I have understood from uh, my deepest inner self. And that's not uh, a stinky little Nagarjuna or somebody. It's the great cosmic Buddha in me who has revealed this. So it's the teaching of the Buddha. And they did this in good faith. 
So although from one historical point of view the, the, the books of Mahayana Buddhism are much later than those of Theravada or the Pali scriptures, you will often find Mahayanists arguing that they are immeasurably more ancient because they incorporate a fundamental and eternal wisdom which is preached by the Buddha outside time. So as we, when we tell a fairy story, we say, once upon a time there was a beautiful prince. And uh, so on, you know. When was that? Long, long ago. Yeah, very long ago. It means this is a timeless tale. You see, there's always liable to be a beautiful prince. But so once upon a time has the same sense as the first word of St. John's Gospel, Enachi, in the beginning was the word. That's in the archetypal, primordial beginnings. So that's where all those sutras come from. They were, they say, well, thus have I heard. At a certain occasion, the Buddha was in the Tsushita heaven and was surrounded with this, that, and the other. So that means this is timeless. But actually the Mahayana does represent a certain kind of historical evolution. The evolution resulting upon many, many people making serious experiments with the Buddha's original doctrine. They tried to transform their consciousness by eliminating desire. They tried, in other words, to overcome suffering by toughening themselves. And as a result of doing those experiments, they found out certain things about themselves. As a result of introspection, they found out a lot about the nature of consciousness and about the nature of just plain isness, existence. In certain directions, they found out that they'd been fools that they had set themselves to discover things that can't be discovered. As if you tried to bite your own teeth. <laughs> or find out what's around the back of the mirror. <laughs> and so, as a result of finding out that certain lines of development were dead ends, they didn't follow them anymore even though they might suggest to their students that they too investigate those roads. That's the nature again of Upaya. Upaya is a clever device to get somebody to realize something which cannot be explained to him intellectually because he won't believe it. I mean, it's easy enough. I can say, well, everybody here, you know, you're all Buddhas. Every one of you. And I don't know what the hell you're doing around here except come in for lunch. Uh, uh, what do you want to learn? Uh, you got no, I can't tell you a thing. See, you have it all. And you say, well, that's all very well in theory, but I don't feel it to be so. So we have to go through this big thing of uh, making all these experiments so as to find out that the theory is so. And that you really are, each one of you, the... Uh, the foundation and ground of the universe. Uh, 
Only, uh, you're going to find it out in a way where it, um, shall we say, won't go to your head. <laughs> where, uh, you'll be able to play it cool that you are the ground of the universe and that it's not something to brag about. On the other hand, it's nothing to be ashamed of and hide. That's the middle way. Madhyamika is the basic form of Mahayana Buddhism, meaning the middle way, which was transmitted to Tibet and lies as ever at the foundation of, of Tibetan Buddhism. So you see the sort of principles I'm sketching out, the sort of uh, uh, way of <clears throat> synthesis of putting together the worldly life and the spiritual life, the bound life and the free life, the hidden life and the found life. That's Mahayana. <clears throat> and because, you see, it ends up in what Frederick Spiegelberg has called the religion of no religion. This is the, the, the end of all this, you see, is to get rid of religion. Like a, uh, when you go to a doctor and he gives you medicine and it cures you, you throw away the bottle. You don't keep on the stuff. So in this in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, the, the aim of it really is to transcend Buddhism. So there are what are called the six precepts of Tilopa. Mano masam machadjing, magam masam rangbabzad. It means, mano, don't think. Masam, have no mind. Machadjing, don't meditate. Magam masam, don't contemplate. Don't discipline yourself. Keep your mind in its natural state. That's in Sanskrit called sahaja, naturalness. But nobody in the world can practice this. There's nothing you can do. Like saying to someone, no, please, be natural. Could you be natural by any imaginable effort or non-effort? You couldn't possibly do it. You have, therefore, you see, before you can be natural and you suddenly have a feeling that you're not natural, that something's wrong with you, you have to do some very unnatural things. So as to, to, to find again that you, you can't be unnatural, even if you try very hard to do so. I can't separate myself from the divine unity by any stratagem whatsoever, but I won't know that that's so unless I try very hard to do so. So we all try, you see, very hard to be individuals, and then to be perfect individuals, to be in charge, to be God, to rule ourselves. And as a result, in the end, we find out that that wasn't necessary. It was like putting legs on a snake, as they say in Zen. So one returns then to the natural state, where religion vanishes. And you can't say, when you look at the Bodhisattva, who is the Buddhist ideal, it's very difficult to distinguish him.